This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. And welcome to this week's Connected to Chicago. I'm Nick Gale, and joining me today is Adam Schuster, Senior Director of Budget and Tax Research at the Illinois Policy Institute. Thanks for joining me today, Adam. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. You know, for those that aren't familiar with the Illinois Policy Institute, tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So we are a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank. Uh, and what that basically means is that we engage in uh, research on uh, problems facing the state of Illinois. We also produce solutions to those problems. And then uh, we, produce, we, we uh, get that research out through, uh, through the media, through our own website, IllinoisPolicy.org, um, and, and sort of uh, engage both lawmakers and the public to, to try to educate them on, on the findings of our research and what solutions are available for the problems we face as a state. I want to start with this, uh, a Democrat governor actually moving forward with some transparency, I think. Governor Pritzker signing a bill to show how Illinois construction funds are spent. So we finally get to see where the money's going, I guess, huh? Yeah, and, and the big you know change here is... Uh is that they're improving the way we pick the projects, the infrastructure projects um, that taxpayer money goes to. So the old way of doing it um, and how we've been doing things in Illinois for decades now is that politicians essentially get to pick the projects. Um, and when politicians get to pick the projects, they have an incentive to pick the flashiest projects, big things that they can point to when they're running for reelection, but not always necessarily the things that have the best return on investment or are most beneficial to the public. Uh, and so this bill that uh, Governor Pritzker just signed um, implements something uh, similar to what Virginia has. They call it a smart scale in Virginia, but really it's a, it's a cost-benefit analysis. It's a, it's a data-driven way of determining um, you know, how much things are going to cost and what benefits they'll give to the public looking at engineering data and economic data to figure out you know, how to give taxpayers the best bang for their buck. Is this strictly for uh, state tax dollars, that stuff that comes in from a motor fuel tax, or what about the federal funds that, that come in? Is there any kind of an eye on that stuff? Yeah, so this will be um, anything that is funded uh, through a state of Illinois appropriation. So they pass a bill to fund a project. Um, so that could be things that are just funded through through state sources, the motor fuel tax, your vehicle registration fees, and all those types of things. Um, but also there are federal infrastructure dollars uh, that flow to state projects. So it, it would affect uh, those um, that, that portion of, of federal infrastructure spending if it sort of flows through um, the state's budget. Uh, the, the sort of unfortunate uh, side of this story um, is that the effective date wasn't until January January 1st, 2022, so, you know, next January, um, but the capital plan was a six-year capital plan, uh, Governor Pritzker calls it Rebuild Illinois, in which we're spending $45 billion over six years. And any projects that were picked already when that, that was planned that have already begun, you know, those are going to be picked sort of the old way by, by politicians. And that's unfortunate because we found at least $1.4 billion of what we call waste and pork projects in that initial capital bill. Wow. So essentially, a lot of the projects are still going to be handled the way they were handled before, right, without this this kind of transparency. That's right. So we'll have more transparency, more confidence that we're getting a good bang for our buck 
starting next year, <laughs> starting with projects that are selected next year and beyond. But, um, but you know, a lot of the money going out the door right now, the, the, the fact that they, you know, doubled the motor fuel tax, increased vehicle registration fees, and, and a whole slew of other tax and fee hikes to pay for this infrastructure package, I don't think that this bill means we can have confidence that all of that money is being spent well, unfortunately. Speaking of taxes, uh, Governor Pritzker, really with um, over his tenure, I guess, a, a lot of new higher taxes, fees, that kind of thing since taking office. Uh, where is Illinois right now as far as, you know, the, the budget, uh, what's coming out of our pockets? Um, it, it just seems that we're the highest taxed uh, state in the nation. I don't know if that's true or not, but we got, we got to be close. We're definitely one of the highest tax. Now, it depends a little bit on how you measure it. Um, different studies come up with slightly different rankings, but we're absolutely, you know, in the top five or very near there. Some people have put us at number one. Um, and the, the 24 tax and fee hikes under Governor Pritzker in, in less than a full term certainly don't help. That Those 24 tax and fee hikes that have been implemented uh, under Pritzker are going to cost Illinoisans over $5 billion a year taken out of our economy, given to the government for politicians to spend. Um, where we are uh, in the budget and, um, you know, in our you know sort of state finances more generally is that, you know, the, the decade after the Great Recession, I call it a lost decade decade for Illinois. Our economy never fully recovered the way many other states did. Uh, our jobs growth continued to lag behind. We continued to drive out businesses and, and residents uh, from our state. And, and one of the main reasons they tell us that they're leaving is that the taxes are too high here. It's very clear uh, in public opinion polling data, for example, the reason people are leaving is the cost of living is too high and they're not getting uh, much benefit for that. Um, you know, and despite that, you know, uh, deficits, pension debt have grown under Governor Pritzker. Um, so tax hikes are, are a self-defeating strategy in a state that's already overtaxed. All we're doing is driving out more taxpayers uh, that have to be made up with, with tax hikes later. So what we really need is, is structural reforms to bring our spending in line with our revenues uh, to give our people a government that they can afford. I imagine the Republican lawmakers down in Springfield would be on board with that. But what about the rest of the lawmakers there? Is it just tone deaf? Are they not seeing the numbers, the exodus that we've seen here in Illinois, people leaving because of higher taxes? I, I think there is a degree of ignoring the problems uh, among too many people in Springfield, including uh, in the governor's office. Um, you know, for example, uh, the state of Illinois just got its first credit rating upgrade in 20 years, um, but we're still the lowest rated state of any state. And, and basically the reason for that upgrade is there was this flood of federal money that I'm sure you've talked about on your, on your show with other guests. But um, Illinois state and local governments, not just the state, but all state and local governments, if you include transit and election security and schools, have gotten $32 billion from the federal government um, as a result of COVID-19. Um, so that money has helped us pay our bills faster and pay them more on time, and it, it led the ratings agencies to give us a little bit of an upgrade, which is a good thing. But unfortunately, the politicians are trying to use that to say that all our problems are behind us, we're, we're moving towards fiscal responsibility, and they really haven't done that yet. So, you know, we're, we're saying rather than, you know, uh, celebrate a job that you haven't even done yet, you know, get get to work and, and solve the problems. And that goes along with basically even with these new fees and higher taxes, still not balancing out the budget, right? We're, we're not there. 
That's that's right. Governor Pritzker will say that he has had three years of balanced budgets. Um, Audited state reports uh, don't show that. Uh, In fact, what they show is that we've had 21 consecutive years of deficits. And these 21 consecutive budget deficits uh, have given us the second worst total debt burden in the nation. And, you know, this is this is the problem is people are seeing their taxes go up. And they're not getting any services, any better services from their government in return. Their taxes are going up and they're being thrown down a black hole of debt because the state of Illinois won't do things like reform pensions. And we can reform pensions in a way that protects benefits already earned, but we need to make it reasonable and affordable on a going forward basis. And because you know, they, they won't get serious um, you know, about solving these problems, they've continued to fester. So you bring up, uh, you brought up credit ratings in Illinois, and certainly a lot of that has to do with how much debt the state is carrying. Um, upgraded a little bit, but as you kind of alluded to, we're it's it's still an uphill climb, right? An uphill battle. Well, yes, and and I think that upgrade is is less meaningful than than a lot of people are saying. So uh, both uh, the comptroller, uh, Susanna Mendoza, and Governor Pritzker have kind of held the bill backlog out as um, the the singular metric of success. And they've said our our bill backlog is is lower than it has been in recent years. And and that happens to be true. um, But what what they're leaving out is, first, a lot of that debt has just been transferred from the bill backlog to other forms of short-term borrowing, right? So this is sort of like paying off one credit card with another credit card. And the state's own projections, not mine, right? The the state of Illinois' financial Mm -hmm. projections show that within three years, uh, our bill backlog is going to reach an all-time record high. So this is this is a temporary improvement that is caused by this flood of federal cash, um, and you know it's it's not a sign that that we're out of the woods. It's a sign that you know the federal government is propping us up right now, and that should be you know that should be breathing room. We should we should view that as an opportunity since they are helping us for us to you know get our own fiscal house in order before that federal money dries up. Because if if we pretend the problems are gone and then we let the federal money dry up, we're going to be in an even worse position than where we started. And again, it all goes back in a circle because we can circle back to the public pensions and uh, reform that's needed there. What is the latest on that front in Springfield? Is there any guarantee from uh, anybody, uh, governor's office, uh, Democrats, Republicans on still trying to work uh, to get reform? You know, I I think it's interesting because there's there's a lot of different opinions down there. I think there are there's a growing awareness, certainly among the public, for the need for pension reform. Uh, there was a poll last year that found 51 percent of Illinoisans support a constitutional amendment to allow for pension reform, and that was the first time. Um, you know, in, in at least a decade that, that a majority of Illinoisans have supported pension reform. But the, the people are kind of ahead of the politicians on this. And while I think there are a number of good lawmakers down in Springfield who are taking it seriously, unfortunately, it's not the majority. And, you know, we just heard that Governor Pritzker, when he went to the rating agencies to make a case for yet further upgrades, um, part of his pitch to them was sort of that the pension crisis is over and that we just need to keep spending 25 to 30 percent of our budget on it for the next 25 years and every Everything will be fine. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, both uh, both that, that plan, spending, you know, more than a quarter of everything we send to the state going to pensions isn't sustainable. And, you know, the, the projections do not show that, that the problem is solved. So uh, this is this is an issue where, you know, the governor has been sort of actively denying that there's a problem rather than trying to fix it.
You know, you were talking about uh, money, people leaving the state, uh, and you know, COVID nineteen certainly hasn't helped things. Um, businesses losing money, uh, losing customers, and that of course means less tax revenues brought into state and local governments. Um, what has COVID nineteen? What has the impact of COVID nineteen been as far as uh, finances and bringing money into like state coffers? Um, so when it when it comes to to state coffers, it's actually been surprisingly good. Um, there there was a report, oh. you know, uh, yeah, in 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 the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of concern about government uh, revenue losses resulting from the pandemic. Um, but because the federal government has spent so much money. Um, uh, revenue losses for state and local governments have ranged from far less than expected to, to essentially non-existent. Um, in fact, Illinois is one of 21 states that saw more revenue in the 12 months after the pandemic began than in the 12 months before uh, the pandemic began. Um, so the, the federal money helps in two ways. One is, you know, directly just giving us money for our budget that, that keeps the revenue up. And the other one is, you know, the Paycheck Protection Program, Enhanced Unemployment Benefits, all these other forms of spending that have propped up uh, income and have propped up spending by, by just ordinary people. And because their income and spending has stayed up, you know, sales tax collections have stayed up and income tax uh, collections have stayed up. So um, there, there was a little bit of a hit, you know, relative to what we would have expected had the economy kept growing um, as fast as it was prior to the pandemic. But there actually was not a, a loss year over year. So I guess th- that would lead to the question of if things get worse, as we seem to be going backwards here, uh, with the you know the governor ordering masks uh, mandated and and that kind of thing and a vaccine thing today that that, mm-hmm. that came out, I, I guess then without more federal assistance down the road, should things get worse, we could be in trouble. Yes, the state of Illinois could be in deep trouble. Um, you know uh, those projections I mentioned earlier show that we could reach up to twenty two billion dollars in unpaid bills and and just just to make clear uh, unpaid bills means somebody did a service for the state a vendor came and did something for the state and we haven't paid them for it yet so 22 billion dollars is about half of our annual state budget and their projections are showing us on track to reach 22 billion dollars in unpaid bills three years from now so um, the the fiscal situation is still very tenuous but but even more than that um, the fact that that government revenues have have kept up does not mean that business revenues have kept up and small businesses have been devastated by the policies that Governor Pritzker has been putting in place, the mitigations that have been put in place, the shutdowns, the capacity limits. Uh, at one point, you know, half of small businesses were closed, and we don't know how many of those um, are, are, are going to be permanent. But, you know, I mean, you walk around Chicago and you see the restaurants closed. You see the, the, the mom and pop shops that, that have closed down, uh, and, and it's really sad. And, and they need support, and, and the, the primary form of support that they need is the freedom to sell to their customers. You know, another thing that's coming up uh, just over the horizon here uh, this week coming up, it looks like lawmakers are back down in Springfield and they're going to be talking about redistricting. Um, And I guess maybe you can explain this for me. They kind of did it without the final census numbers, but they have those numbers now, do they not? Or am I wrong on that? Yeah, they do have the numbers now. So um, they, they initially drew the maps uh, using 
uh, census estimates. The Census Bureau puts out annual estimates in between the um, the the, the, the uh, every ten year census. Um, and now that they have the final data, they said they they might adjust some boundaries here and there. Um, but the the maps are not expected to change sort of dramatically from from what they uh, originally passed, unless a court um, were to force that. And there are ongoing lawsuits uh, against these maps, and and that gets to the real heart of the issue, which is that these maps uh, were not drawn in a neutral way. They were not drawn to create, you know, competitive districts that allow voters to pick their politicians. They were drawn for the benefit of politicians to manipulate um, uh, boundary lines so that they can pick their voters. So this is a, this is reversing the, the proper democratic process. So we have politicians picking voters instead of voters uh, picking politicians. Uh, and the effect of this, this, this gerrymandering, um, this lack of competitive elections, is that we discourage people from running for office. And when we discourage them from running for office, we have uncontested races. And those uncontested races drive down voter turnout because people don't show up to vote when they don't have a true choice and when their preferences uh, aren't represented on the ballot. Um, and so we have research that shows um, as a result of gerrymandering, uh, um, there was 1.7 million fewer votes over the last 10 years uh, in general elections than there would have been had we had a candidate in each race. And there's been an argument out there for years now that uh, we should let a computer draw the maps. Would that have uh, better results? Absolutely. A computer would be great. Uh, you know, many states, uh, about half of states have moved to independent commissions. So rather than letting, you know, uh, politicians draw the districts that they themselves will run in. I mean, this this is so clearly a, a corrupt system. Um, about half of the states have said instead we need an independent commission. And, and how those commissions are picked varies. But generally, the, there's an expectation of nonpartisanship um, or at least bipartisanship. They try to get an equal number of Republicans and Democrats. They try to pick people from outside the political process. Uh, another way to do it, like you said, is to have computers draw the maps and then just, just have someone approve uh, kind, of, kind of what the computer comes up with. Um, but the point is we need to be trying to, to end gerrymandering, trying to have fair maps. And in fact, this was a, a campaign promise of Governor Pritzker. Pritzker not only said that he would push for fair maps, he promised over and over and over again that he would veto an unfair map. And then an unfair map was delivered to his desk and he signed it. So he's just sitting on it now. I guess then my question would be, do you know, is there any, anybody that's going to be squeezed out of their district? Uh, you know, I don't remember the exact numbers on the final map, but there were a number of mostly okay. Republican lawmakers who uh, who were um, either drawn out of their district. Initially, uh, there was a district that uh, they were going to I, I believe it was five different Republicans would have had to run against each other in a single district. Um, but that was sort of a first draft. We're now in the second draft. And because of the census numbers, there could even be a third draft. Interesting. OK, well. I guess we'll see come next election what what's going to happen. You know, I guess they have the option if they want, they could move into the district they were drawn out of, right? If they had to do it, pick up and leave. That's right. The one of the ways that we can fight back against this is for people to just run for office. Because um, over the last map, the 10 years under the last map, half 
of the races for Illinois House of Representatives only had one candidate. They were uncontested. And that's why 1.7 million people in that decade didn't show up to vote. So even though they didn't give us a fair map, if people, you know, run for office, honorable, good people decide to run for office and challenge the status quo, challenge these people, um, you know, who haven't had an opponent in the past, you know, we can we can start to push back against the system. To that point, I want to ask you, that's probably the case in Chicago and the Collar counties, right? Not so much downstate? Correct. The, the vast majority, not all, but the, the majority of uncontested races have been in Cook County and the near Chicago suburbs. My guest has been Adam Schuster, Senior Director of Budget and Tax Research at the Illinois Policy Institute. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot. And coming up, the Reporter Roundtable here on Connected to Chicago. This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. A look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. And time for the Reporter Roundtable. We welcome in this week Lynn Sweet of the uh, Chicago Sun-Times. Hi, Lynn. Hi, everyone. Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. Ray? Hey, hey. Heather Sharon of WTTW Channel 11. Hi, Heather. Hi, Nick. And Greg Hines uh, from Crane Chicago Business. Hi, Greg. Sir. So a lot happening out there, and I think on the national level, the big issue is what's happening over in Afghanistan right now, uh, where Adam Kinzinger is now weighing in, critical of how the current and past administrations have handled things with regards to visas for Afghans who uh, were helping U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Yeah, if I could jump in on, on that one. Uh, Adam Kinzinger already had a growing national profile because of his fight against conspiracy theories and election denial and is taking a post on the January 6th commission. But he is also a military pilot who served in Afghanistan and flew missions. And so he is getting, uh, he has particular credibility when he is a critic of the way that the Biden administration executed the exit, this final exit from Afghanistan uh, to the point where he also called for some people in the Biden administration uh, to resign, though, you know, clearly he's not asking the president to do that. So, you know, uh, Kinziger also created a um, he, he's using his uh, political action committee to raise money to help Afghan refugees. So this is this is an issue right in Kinzinger's wheelhouse and only increases his, his already he's taking his visibility even to a higher level. I'd just like to add that, you know, I think it's very uh, interesting also because he was a pilot. And we have all this uh, terrible tragedy that's going on at an airport in Afghanistan because people can't get out. So uh, just to underscore what Lynn said, he's just got this incredible extra layer of of knowledge and insight into it. So that all plays into, just as Lynn said, his increasing uh, profile on the national level. Yeah, Nick, uh, I, don't, I don't agree with Kinsler on everything, but I think he's one right on one key point. There's plenty of blame to go around here, and 
uh, it goes on for a very long period of time. Uh, a series of presidents got us there, kept us there. Uh, Mr. Trump, who on, I've watched him on, uh, on TV last night, and he was saying, ah, I got along great with the Taliban. They were wonderful. They did what they were told. Uh, he's the one that, that, that kind of agreed to this, uh, to this August 31st date. Um, and I think um, Biden is right that, uh, that uh, it, it was time to go. The problem is the way in which the exit was handled, in particular, the, the, the lack of any kind of knowledgeable intelligence, uh, big eye and little eye, uh, that, uh, that when we see that we were going to stick to that to that date that the Afghan army wasn't going to just melt away and the thing wasn't going to fall apart in a hurry. Um, that's the main failure here. Uh, I don't know enough about the details of, of, the, of the shooting and who, what guards uh, dropped the ball, if anybody dropped the ball. Uh, the Biden people had been saying that uh, ISIS was going to do something, which is why they wanted to stick to the, to the August 31st timetable. <clears throat> but the lack of preparation and early action to get some of our allies out, uh, the people that worked with us out, which is what Kinsner is, is talking about, that's a problem. To, to bring that back closer to home, do we know, and Lynn, maybe you know, or, or Greg, anybody, uh, do we know if some of those refugees are going to be coming here? We, you know, we heard from Governor Pritzker saying he would welcome them here. So the, no one comes, just so our listeners know, no Afghan refugees comes directly from Kabul to the United States. They have other countries where there are way stations where they are vetted. Okay. Once they are vetted, uh, they look at their documents, they look at their telemetrics, that's their eyes, their fingerprints, to see what's on file. Uh, then they are taken to various uh, military right now, and this is going to probably change because we probably will get refugees then in Illinois, but the next stop in the Midwest is Fort McCoy in Wisconsin. That's the closest space here, but there are refugee agencies in Chicago that are bracing to get ready in case some of these new refugees are sent here. But I think the most important thing to note is that when you see these cargo planes with transporting thousands of people, no one is coming directly to the United States without some kind of screening. Okay. I think another big story we saw this week, uh, of course, the the governor out with the back with the mask mandate, and uh, but also mandating vaccinations for some medical staff and for some teachers. Um, Ray, I'll start with you. Uh, we think we're going to see some uh, pushback here uh, again, maybe from um, teachers' unions. Well, um, it, it looks like the, that a lot of the teachers' unions uh, may go. Uh, along with at least parts of that. But I do anticipate that there will be pushback in downstate Illinois because there is a general opposition overall to a lot of these masks. Now, I noticed that Carlisle, which is in deep southern Illinois, had been very anti-mask, and then they had a whole bunch of people who uh, went to school and ended up uh, catching COVID, and so they, so that whole issue has has uh, been a, an example of what can go wrong if you have uh, if you're not cautious enough. And so, I I 
still see pushback because it's an ideological and a political problem here in a lot of downstate. But, um, you know, the numbers favor the idea that you should be trying to take care of yourself here and using masks is one way. Do you think if I I have a question, Ray, since you, you know so much about Southern Illinois, will this change people's views? In a sense, it's like a big science fair experiment. Okay, Carlisle. You didn't get vaccinated, and you didn't use masks, and you didn't social distance because you, you didn't want anyone to tell you what to do. And now you see the consequences. You know, Dr. Ziki said either yesterday or today that in, part, in, in, southern, in a big swamp of southern Illinois, there's just one ICU bed out there. And it's not necessarily for a COVID patient if you had, God forbid, a car crash. So do you think this could change and melt some of the political resistance? You know, I think I think that's a great question, and I've been trying. I've been puzzled about it too. I, I mean, I grew up in Central Illinois, and I understand the people, uh, you know, wanting to cry freedom and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is that you need to um, also have an open mind on the science. The problem is that a lot of people are getting uh, misinformation. They're skeptical anyway. They. Uh, uh, find an excuse when they uh, when the first one they had falls apart, and so there's a natural reluctance, unfortunately, uh, embedded in a lot of the uh, folks downstate who want to um, who want to argue that uh, this type of treatment is not necessary. There's still people here. There was some, uh, there was a story in the New York Times, in fact, uh, this week about uh, the uh, Redneck Riviera down in Gulf Shores, Alabama, where people were not using masks. And they quoted an Illinois person, or they referenced an Illinois person who said, I don't believe there really is a problem with this COVID stuff. So I have to wonder, though, whether it's uh, whether it's misinformation or just plain old mule stubbornness. Uh, uh, it was one thing when the, it was one thing when the governor was was shutting down. Uh, everybody had to stay in, and people were losing their ability to make money and and and, and feed their kids or whatever. And that clearly caused some real harm. But where's the what's the harm in 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 getting a shot that's been proving overwhelmingly to be safe, uh, and and in and in wearing a mask that at worst just causes you a little temporary inconvenience if you're going to save somebody else's life? I don't uh, argue with that logic. Um, the r- reality is, though, that a lot of people hear things or they'll, they don't, you know, they don't have uh, access and don't try to have access to a lot of more sophisticated news coverage in, in a lot of areas. They get AP, but, and that is good, but they don't, you know, the papers don't always give it the play it deserves. And, um they are limited on um, what they see and what they read, and fewer people are subscribing, and fewer fewer people are listening to straight news like we try to write uh, every day uh, and broadcast every day. And um, they may be listening to these uh, conservative radio hosts who um, are not in you know, in line with the science, they want to throw skepticism 
out there and outright misinformation. I, I, th- I think you're being generous, my friend. Um, <laughs> I mean, he, I mean, you have an example of here in Chicago where the head of the police union, after the mayor ordered police to be inoculated, compared getting a shot to, to the Holocaust, which is just yeah. an outrageous. I mean, that's that's not misinformation. Uh, that's a whole different kind of deviltry. Yeah, 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 and. And uh, I just don't want to give even some of the misinformation an an example so that I don't spread it myself. Um, But the reality is that, uh, you know, it's a different breed of cat in uh, this state. We've seen it on other issues like guns and and how uh, downstate has a different view of of guns than – upstate does. This, unfortunately, has become political as well as ideological, and um, it is a stubborn thing, it is, it, but it is also uh, a tough thing to really change. Well, and on that, with the becoming political, I guess my, my question would be then, how does this impact uh, Pritzker's run for re-election uh, certainly downstate, they, they are more red and Republican uh, to begin with. But does this hurt Pritzker? I think it does. I, I think he's probably he probably lost a lot of folks um, just on the first round of uh, like Greg was talking about mm-hmm. shutting down in restaurants and and masking and things like that. And uh, I think that he, He's never going to get some of the folks that he lost back, but um, he's, he seems to be willing to just keep on the course that he's on. And, uh, you know, even his ads, his, his uh, re-election ads, uh, reinforce the idea that this is the way to go and this is what I believe, et cetera, et cetera. And it really, um, I don't think, is going to... Uh, you know, shift too many people down here in a downstate. I happen to be in Springfield right now, and I, I don't think that um, you're going to be able to move some of the people that have already made a decision that they don't like the way Pritzker has run the whole thing, even though his numbers would suggest that he's, he's doing a reasonable job. Pritzker became governor losing almost every downstate county. He will lose every downstate county, no matter who the GOP nominee is. So the so the people who don't like how he handled COVID were never going to vote for him anyway. So when you ask Nick, is this going to hurt him? I don't think so because uh, it, they, they, I don't think the uh, there's these are not persuadable voters. Mm-hmm. So if, as always, so much of an election ends up in the Chicago suburbs, then we say, well, who's the nominee of the Republican Party? If it's this Nick Rabin or, uh, oh, my God, the other guy, uh, Darren Bailey. Shim. Uh, yeah, sure. I'm sorry. Yeah. Then if they are running as pro-Trump, anti-vaxxers, uh, they're going to, well, one, one of them, we'll see who survives the primary. Uh, we don't know yet about the intentions of Adam Kinzinger and Rodney Davis. But if it's a race to the right, that just helps Pritzker because he could, you know, Democrats win statewide on the votes of city of Chicago, suburban Cook, DuPage, which is becoming increasingly Democratic, Lake County, and some of the other collar counties. So I don't. Yeah. 
you know, that uh, seems to be I, the story right now. Yeah, and I don't know that he's going to be losing overall, but it's not, he's certainly not going to be he's not, not going to be picking up um, the 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 downstate people who became hardened, and then some Democratic areas too. I mean, you've got uh, conservative towns that also have heavy Democratic turnouts, so, such as Peoria, uh, which will, uh, as a Democratic town, it will probably go for Pritzker, but there are a lot of conservatives in there too. I mean, that's the town where Bob Michael came from and uh, Ray LaHood and Darren LaHood. But um, so I think that as far as does it hurt Pritzker? Yeah, he's not picking up any votes on this. He may uh, get people to uh, he may get a fraction more people against him. Does it hurt him overall? You got to just like we've said on this show 150 times, you got to have somebody to run before you can beat somebody in place. And so far right now, Pritzker is is in pretty good shape. We haven't heard, I don't think, yet from Heather, so I'm going to push this one her way. Alderman Kerry Austin uh, resigning as chair of the City Council's Committee on uh, Contracting, Oversight, and Equality. I think she did it the day after Mayor Lori Lightfoot called for it, but she's still going to stay on as an alderman, Heather. That's right. And her resignation as committee chair came nine days after I reported that that committee spent almost $200,000, met only three times in 2020, and advanced not one single substantive piece of legislation. And council was really in a bind because her committee is in charge of expanding the city's set-aside program, which is designed to help firms owned by black, Latino, Asian Chicagoans, and, and female Chicagoans get their fair share of the city's contract. That has been stalled in Carrie Austin's committee, and uh, that needed to sort of move forward, facing a deadline of the end of September. So they had to do something, and this is what happened. I- I'm not convinced that, that Mayor Lightfoot really did push Carrie Austin out. Um, she has really said nothing different about Carrie Austin's federal indictment, which she has pled not guilty to, than she said about Alderman Patrick Daly-Thompson, who was also indicted by the federal government. And it's clear that Carrie Austin has been a consistent, reliable vote for the mayor's agenda. And the mayor has a very narrow council majority majority to work with going into this budget season. So uh, there are hard, hard feelings on both sides, I think. So we'll have to see how this all plays out. And well, I guess... I don't expect to uh, get a Christmas card for the Oliver this year. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so since we're on the topic of, right, the politicians, uh, prosecutors are saying that the ComEd scheme was indeed bribery, not lobbying. Uh, in a motion, I guess that was filed uh, in the case this week. Ray, I think you covered this story uh, for the Tribune. Right. The, the uh, interesting thing I thought in this uh, brief, and a lot of times these briefs can be a blur and, and uh, get down into the weeds, and this one did, but I thought that the point that uh, came out to me was that clearly the federal government is g- going to go after uh, Madigan and this crew of, of friends that he, he has 
um, who have already been indicted uh, with the idea that you don't have to have a clear quid pro quo on any of the alleged bribery counts. And they went out of their way to mention that, hey, a, a lot of Madigan's pals got as much as $700,000 in uh, payments uh, for little or no work. And uh, this can be the uh, outline of uh, a bribery scheme if, uh, if uh, that, that should go before a jury. And, of course, all of the uh, people who have been indicted, which include uh, Mike McLean, a former lobbyist and former lawmaker who was a comment lobbyist, and uh, uh, Anne Promajori, who was the CEO of, of uh, ComEd, clearly those uh, types of allegations have been wrapped into this whole stew, and the, their defendants, their, their defense, rather, is that, hey, uh, there was no quid pro quo, therefore you can't prosecute on these grounds. So uh, the federal government is going to go with even the idea that some of these uh, uh, payments were more or less an inference. You can infer, they actually use the term infer, uh, uh, bribery was part of the motive here. And so when you see that laid out, you kind of get a better uh, glimpse at what the government is trying to do. Always interesting, isn't it? That's uh, all the time we have for the uh, roundtable. My thanks to Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times, Ray Long of the Tribune, Heather Sharon of Channel 11, WTTW, and Greg Hines from Crane's Chicago Business. Up next, Lauren Cohn. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. The National Alliance on Mental Illness is trying to move people with mental health issues away from jails and state-operated hospitals and into a system of care that can help them get on a path to stability. Joining me is the Chicago Organization's COO, Jen McGowan-Tomkey. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. What's wrong with the current system? The current system um, really creates a detanglement between the criminal court system as the safety net for mental health services. So it connects people with the criminal court system in this specific population just because of a mental health condition. And that connection in and of itself um, doesn't always help people strive to recovery, doesn't always help people connect with their health and the needed services um, that that may be helpful for them in their lives. So the intersection here and really the court system as a safety net is a challenge, and it's also a challenge that there are solutions for. So how will you change the system to make it better for those that are suffering? I think there are um, several short-term and long-term solutions that we can point to um, that we did in, in our recent report. But on a whole, the, the big picture, I think, is that People really need services in the community before they come into contact with the courts, and that's um, services like housing and um, community-based mental health services and other social supports. And then 
in the case of people that are connected with the court system, we really need to focus on where the right setting is for support. And for many folks who are in the um, court system or the state hospital system now, they could be treated in the community um, different than they are uh, at this moment. And that would really um, shift both where people are getting services that are helpful for them and also um, reduce costs. So when you talk about then transferring it to being treated in the community, who pays for that? And, and what's specific when you say in the community? Is this a medical setting or is it a council setting? Well, I think what, what's important to remember is that um, what ends up happening is the court system becomes the default, the safety net, because um, community mental health services are stressed or limited because how access to housing is such a challenge because um, support services in the community uh, aren't always invested in. And so if we really could focus on that first point, folks would, uh, the, the level of hospitalizations or the need to ultimately get care within the court system because that's the only entry point, I think would diminish. Um, so this is a matter really of uh, partnership with our, with our local um, municipalities, with the county systems that run jails, and with the state system that runs our state hospitals. And when we talk about these people that are you know, going into the court system, is it mostly adults or youth as well? The, the focus of um, our recent report was really around adults in the system, but we know that young people, um, those who are connected to the juvenile court system, 70% of them live with a mental health condition. So this is, an, a, a, this is something that we need to focus on early on as well and make sure supports are in place for young people at the time that they need them. Jen McGowan, Tomke, thanks so much. And thanks so much for all your hard work in trying to improve the lives of many people who are suffering out there. We really appreciate your time. And I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Matt Mellon for production assistance. I'm Bill Cameron, WLS News. Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.